Bill McKinley in the house this morning? I don't have his little clippy clip. All right. Well, good morning, beloved. Let's continue our time of worship in the Word. Please turn with me to Micah chapter 4. For those of you who are new with us, we've been in Micah, at least when I've been up preaching, um, with Jim and Hanson going through Romans and Hebrews, I feel like it's my responsibility to give you your dose of Old Testament. So you've been warned, here it comes, Micah chapter 4. If you are able or willing with me this morning, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Micah chapter 4, verse 1. It shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit, every man, under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken." For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Lord, bless the reading of your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I've used this illustration before for as much as I don't particularly like some of the questionable theology in C.S. Lewis's last book of the Narnia series, The Last Battle. There's one particular scene in The Last Battle that grips the heart of many Christians as uh, they finally come into Aslan's land. The, the children, the animals, the weird creatures, the centaurs and the unicorns and everybody else, you know, it's Narnia after all. And um, they all, they come into Aslan's land and they see a land that is so beautiful, that is so rich in beauty and in majesty that they see the glory of the glorious one everywhere they look. And the longer that they gaze, they see more. And the further that they go, every corner that they turn, they see more. And one of the well-known quotes from Jewel, Mr. Unicorn, is he sees this sight of Aslan's land, and he says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. Come further up. Come further in. This call to come further up and further in, again, has encouraged many Christians as we uh, look forward to our eternal hope and as we long to know God more, to abound more and more in loving him and to know more of the mysteries of God. It is a journey and a pursuit that will never end. And in case any of you think that heaven will be boring, I have to tell you that it's not. We will be so enthralled with the majesty of God forever that it will be, as C.S. Lewis describes, not the end of the story, but the beginning of forever, the beginning of the real story as we are God's people with him. Um, There is something about this that just reflects 
the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God, as Romans says, being in the presence of the Lord face to face, we will never tire of gazing at him, being with him, learning from him, and becoming more and more like him as we behold his majesty. Our passage today is a piece of prophecy that transports us to such a scene. The purpose of this prophecy is specifically to give us comfort and hope, especially in the light of human brokenness. For those of you that remember the last time when we were in Micah chapter 3, it was a little bleak. Um, and we have the brokenness of man, the, the sinfulness, the, the depth of depravity of the human heart, that even the leaders of Israel and even Christians today, we do not seek after the Lord. However, this prophecy reminds us that there is a future and a hope that awaits those who are in Christ, and it also reminds us that there is a serious warning and a choice that each of us as Christians are confronted with. As we behold the future, you must choose what kingdom you will pursue and live in now. Because the choice that you make now will impact your experience of God's future kingdom forever. As we dive into our text today, I'm just going to give you a couple of earmarks so that you can follow along. Um, first, we're going to run through the passage briefly and, and just see at face value the, the, that God has revealed his future kingdom. This is the hope. This is the kingdom that is revealed to us. Secondly, we'll see that this kingdom presents us with a choice. Each of us must make a choice, and that choice presents us with a problem. Thirdly, we'll see that the gospel frees us from that problem. And lastly, we'll consider how this passage beckons us to live. So first, this passage presents to us the hope of God's future kingdom, and he clearly reveals it to us. Verse 1, it shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. As verse 1 points out to us, this prophecy is promised to come to pass in the latter days. It directs our thoughts to the end of time, when the Lord returns and sets everything right, establishes his kingdom forever, and we will dwell with him forever. This prophecy is intended to give us hope. Um, we pounded home several times last time in Micah chapter 3 that there is judgment coming for sin, and the people cannot escape that judgment. It is a sad sad tragedy when ju justice, judicial officials do not know justice or when prophets do not know the word of God or when Christians end up not knowing Christ at all but are only Christian in name. The passage challenges us because God's judgment comes especially for those who claim to be his people and as we saw at the end of chapter 3, Jerusalem, the temple of the Lord that has been rebuilt, the temple that um, is a symbol of God's presence with his people, it's going to be bulldozed, flattened, destroyed. The mountain of the house, a wooded height that drops like a bombshell to the hearers of, of Micah's word. But... Micah links it to this prophecy of comfort. Just as we saw at the end of the first oracle in Micah, in Micah 1 and 2 is one segment, and at the end of that we have a promise of hope. Um, so here, after a hard message, we also have a promise of hope. And that is that that mountain of the house, the, the temple mount, Mount Zion, the hill that Jerusalem sits on, Jerusalem itself, it having been 
plowed flat and made a home for jackals and birds will be established. It will be raised up. It's a great contrast between what, you, what is coming and what is being told to you now and what the future is bringing and what God's plans are ultimately. The mountain of the house will be exalted above all. And all nations shall flow to it. Everyone will see that the Lord is Lord of all. The peoples shall flow to it, literally river to it. If you can imagine just a great throng of people journeying together as this river of people going up to the house of the Lord, they recognize that the Lord dwells there and they desire to go up to the one who is high and lifted up. They say this awesome statement that the nations, the nations proclaim. They say in verse 2, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. We'll cover this extensively in a little bit, but this statement coming from the nations is absolutely remarkable. It depicts a time when the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. These nations know that the Lord is exalted. They know that he is lifted up, and they desire to go up and to be with him. We can't really say the same thing of, of people today or of nations today. It's Weird, especially given chapter 3, that the nations, Israel itself, is raging against the Lord and against his anointed. They are doing every wicked thing for their own selfish gain, and there is no fear of God in their eyes. But this future people, these future nations, they actually desire to go up. It's as if they're singing the, oh, the old hymn, Oh, that with yonder sacred throng we at his feet may fall. They sing the heart of Psalm 95, 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Truly in that day, we'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. It's a remarkable statement. It's a remarkable picture of the future when we get to be with God, apart from the presence of sin, learning from him, living with him, becoming like him. The reasons why the, the nations come in recognition of the Lord is because God's mountain is highly established above all the world, above all the other mountains. And the Lord God causes his name to dwell there, his presence to dwell there. This is the place where it shall be called the Lord is our righteousness. Um, he is with us. He dwells with us. Everything that we have and, and think of when we think of Emmanuel or Christmas time or a babe given for us for God to take on flesh, it has its fulfillment in the end of our story or the beginning of our story for those of us who are in Christ, that we will be with him forever. In verses 2 through 4, there's, there's more about this picture that is significant. It's from this place, from Zion. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the Torah, and, out, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Just a couple of observations from what we see here. We see that God reigns supreme. He is the, the teacher, the judge, the king. For those of you who have ever heard the expression that God is prophet, priest, and king, we see elements of all of those things here. God is the priest who is charged with 
teaching the people truth and steering them in righteousness. God is also the ultimate prophet that brings his word to his people and shares with them his word and how they are to live. And his word is rich and lovely and more to be desired than gold. And ultimately, he is the king who reigns and like Solomon in his wisdom, sits and judges and between disputes in ultimate wisdom. And the result of God reigning as prophet, priest, and king is that there is peace. The peoples come up to him. Their disputes are settled. Their, their conflicts are no more. They have no need for defense or for war. They will take their weapons and turn them into other instruments for peace and for agriculture. They will not need to go to war anymore when the Lord reigns as king. Every man shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree. This is an expression used before in the Old Testament. In fact, in Solomon's reign, it was said that Solomon established a peace that the same phrase, every man sat under his vine and under his fig tree. I don't think we have vines or fig trees in our backyards, but the idea is you sit in your place, your yard, your, your porch, whatever you want to imagine, your home, and, and you are at peace because there is no presence of fear. There's not, no possibility of fear. I don't know about you, but when I go sit in my backyard and pull out my lawn chairs and sit there, I'm constantly sitting there thinking, okay, I'm going to rest, I'm going to relax, and I hear, over here, and I hear, brother, don't do that, and I'm wondering if Zephaniah is wandering out into the street, and it's just not the absence of fear, and the reason for that is because of the brokenness of the world and, and sin and how it corrupts. There's always the chance of death, of accident, of sinful children whacking one another. Um, there, you will never experience true peace sitting in your yard unless the Lord is king, whether it's a nagging worry at your heart or the anxieties that you feel or the fear of death itself. We are under the fear of death, the fear of sin and its brokenness, how it's affected the world. And it's only in the Lord that there is justice, righteousness, and peace. No one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Just as an observation, um, our world has been fascinated by the idea of world peace for a really long time. Going back to the United Nations and, and the World War I, World War II, we long for peace. Um, we don't, there are groups that don't want to take up weapons to fight pacifists, and we struggle with this concept of, of peace. And wouldn't it all be great if the world could just be all at peace? And, you know, I think Christians should long for world peace. World peace is something that is a part of our future in Christ, how God will come and establish world peace. But it's always interesting to me how our world strives for peace now, but they're never going to find it. They also strive to get along with one another. You know, I always cringe a little bit when I see coexist bumper stickers, only because in my logical brain, I can't fathom how you can smash together all of those truth claims represented by all of those things and have it make logical sense. All of these things cannot be possibly true at the same time. It just is confusing to me. But the reason why ultimately we cannot coexist is not because of the intolerance of some. The reason why we cannot coexist with each other in true peace is because each of us pursues our own idols. We pursue our own gods, and we do not have the Lord reigning over us as our king. Until that happens, we can never truly coexist with the nations and no longer need the art of war and sit in our yards and have no presence of fear. These things, world peace, it just doesn't work if the Lord is not king. 
Given the backdrop then of the world's suffering, the problem of sin, and the brokenness that we experience, especially coming out of Micah chapter 3, this future that we see in Micah 4 is truly invigorating. It truly makes us long to be there. We, we read these words and we might wish ourselves to go up to the mountain of the Lord and to be with him and to experience this kind of peace forever. But it doesn't end at verse 4. The prophet concludes this little section of hope, this little prophecy, with a curious statement that challenges each of us. And this is the, the second item for us today. And that is that even though God's future of hope is clearly revealed, each of us has a choice to make. And it presents us with a problem. Verse 5. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. At a glance, this verse is so comforting, right? To know that we want to be among those kinds of people, among this people. We want to choose. We want to say, yes, I want to walk in the name of the Lord forever and ever. To, to think of being with God forever and ever, to be his forever and ever, is truly a comforting thought. But we can't skip the first half of the verse. The first half of the verse is haunting. All the peoples walk each in the name of its God. And deep down, you and I know that this is true of us. Ultimately, each of you walks in the name of your gods, your pet idols, of your own names. We are not the kind of people that really choose to walk in the name of the Lord because we know we walk in the name of our little g gods. So we have two sides to this coin. We have the, the fact that you must choose whom you will serve and you have the fact that you will choose to serve your idols. I don't think an Old Testament reader can read this verse without thinking of Joshua. I don't know if any of you are thinking of Joshua, but I'm going to go to Joshua chapter 24 and read a bit. If you want to turn there with me and invite you, I'm going to read an extended section. In Joshua, the, the people come into the promised land. They, of course, fail to eradicate all of the nations, but they come and they settle into their inheritances, their their um, places where the lines have fallen for them and each has received his own place, his own vine, his own fig tree. And Joshua, as he is getting old, challenges the people to fear the name of the Lord. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 14, he charges the people and he says, Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, that, that passage is inspirational. We have it on our, our coffee mugs. Maybe some of you have it on your, your door mat or your door frame when you go into your house. It's certainly something I, I want to proclaim as a husband, as a father, as a head of my household. As, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And by all means, those words are very significant, and we should treasure them. It's interesting to me what follows, though. The people answer as we would expect them to. Yeah, we want to do that. Verse 16. The people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way we went and among all the peoples from whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, 
We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Now, there is incredible truth to that statement. The people long to serve the Lord. They long to worship him and him only. They realize that it makes absolutely no logical sense. It is the dumbest decision in all the world to be brought up by the Lord of hosts, by a strong hand and a mighty arm, who has shown such wonders in the land that it is really clear, really undeniable that he alone is God. And yet you have these little carven images that people worship, you know? I love Isaiah and the way he treats idolatry. He's just like, are you, are you kidding me right now? Let's just think about this for a second. You go and chop down wood, and you take half of that wood, and you dip it in gold, and you have yourself a fancy little statue that you like to look at and worship. And then with the other half of that same piece of wood, you warm yourself by the fire, or you do this or do that, or you build a shelter out of it. It's not kind of irreverent that out of the same material, you worship a god, and, a, and you also sustain yourself in your daily mundane needs. And it's, it's true of us and our idols. We, it's ridiculous the way that we think things will satisfy us. But no matter how much we belabor the idiocy of idolatry, we still do it. I still do it. I know that it's stupid. I know that it's crazy. I know that there is only one true God that can satisfy me. But somehow I still keep going back. And that is exactly the problem that remains. The people's heart is good. They want to serve the Lord. I'm sure there has been times in your life as a Christian when you have said, I'm done serving these idols. I'm done worshiping these things. I want to serve the Lord alone. And yet you find that you still struggle with sin or that you're never really able to accomplish the things that you set out to do. And the reason is, is because you cannot. There is no power for salvation in flesh and blood. But the Lord says, I, I alone am the God who saves. And you cannot save yourself. No matter how much you write it down as a New Year's resolution, no matter how much you starve yourself or try to implement fasts or different means of asceticism to make yourself feel like you want this bad enough, the problem is you cannot. Joshua points that out to the people, verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Of course, we know how the story continues, right? If you've read the Old Testament before, um, the, the Israelites pledge as witnesses to, against themselves that they will serve the Lord. And surely some of them do. Um, but you know that as the people dwell in the land and as Joshua dies and as the next generations come up, the people swiftly flee from God and turn to their idols. And then God brings up a judge to save them from the predicament that they get in because of the consequences of their sin that God brings, as he's promised to do. And then the, the judge delivers them from sin, and they follow the Lord, and they tear down their idols, and then that judge dies, right? And then, and then the people will go straight back to their sin, and the process happens over and over and over throughout the whole Bible, the Old, Old Testament. The, the judges were not enough. The prophets were not enough. The kingdom of David and Solomon was not enough to bring true peace to our problem. And in light of such a problem, we can only ask, well, what then shall we do? And of course, this brings us to the gospel. This is why we need the gospel, both at the beginning of our Christian journey and daily after it. 
This is where the gospel comes into play in Acts, Acts 2.38 after such a response of the clear proclamation of the people's helplessness and guilt. They say, what then shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who the Lord our God calls to himself. Just as Jesus says in John chapter 12, when he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, meaning his crucifixion, I will draw all people to myself. Therefore, as Romans 10 tells us, the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart that is the word of faith we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now let's go back to Micah. Micah 4, verse 5. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. This verse presents comforting truth, but it also presents a choice. You cannot skirt around this choice. You will choose one path or the other. It's a fork in the road. Will you choose to walk in the name of yourself, in the name of your idols, your gods, your kingdom? Or will you choose to walk in the name of the Lord? You must make a choice. But I'm here to tell you that you can only choose to walk in the name of the Lord your God as you choose to walk in the name of Jesus and in the life and righteousness that he provides. I implore you, do not leave this place without talking to someone about this decision to trust in Jesus. Why do I implore you? Because, honestly, you are not guaranteed that you're going to make it home today. There's been several wrecks on the road recently. You don't know, sinner, if you have tomorrow, if you have tonight. You are not guaranteed anything. And I implore you, because I know it's easy. I know it's easy to push aside the prompting of God in your heart. You may think to yourself, well, these things are troubling indeed, but... I have tomorrow, and tomorrow I will consider them in full. You may not have tomorrow. You are faced with two options for the future of God's kingdom. Absolute peace in loving relationship with God or absolute terror in the just retribution of God. I want to share with you um, Isaiah chapter 2, if you are willing, go ahead and turn there as well. It's interesting to me the way that Scripture uses itself and um, quotes itself and is a cohesive whole. I, I would be remiss in presenting Micah 4 to you if I did not also present Isaiah 2 to you. In Isaiah chapter 2, we have almost word for word for the first several verses of Micah 4. Isaiah 2 the word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Sound familiar? And 
shall be lifted up and the people shall say, Isaiah 2 verse 3, come, let us go up to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Same thing. He shall judge between the nations, verse 4. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Isaiah doesn't include the, the sitting in your yard under your vine and fig tree part, but he does present a similar verse to uh, Micah 4, 5, where you have a choice to make. All the nations walk in the name of their God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God, Isaiah gives an appeal, an invitation to his people that he desperately loves and who are not listening to his message. And he says, oh, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. But there's still a serious problem here. The Lord has rejected his people, verse 6, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east, and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. They strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made, so man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. He cries out to these people in verse 10, and he says, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up. And it shall be brought low against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? This passage balances the hope of heaven that we have. There is hope. There is, there is this future that God has clearly revealed, but the truth is, that this is a future that only comes for those who choose to walk in the name of the Lord their God as they choose to walk in Jesus' name. This passage, in its complete description, there is no wiggle room here. When the Lord exalts his mountain above all the mountains of the earth, that includes yours. And there is nothing that can stand above him, above his exaltation, if he is to be exalted. If you come to him, you must come releasing all things, surrendering all things, coming to him in brokenness, in humility, in repentance, in faith. Because you cannot have a tower, a wall, a haughty pride, an idol exalted above the Lord. The comfort of the gospel, right, is that we cannot come but through Jesus, and it's through Jesus that all of us can come. There's no distinction between Jew or Greek. There's no distinction between the guy with lots of idols and the guy with one little idol. 
He calls us to come. The truth is that there is one who was humbled, who was brought low, who took upon himself the full terror of the wrath of God so that you don't have to. He says to you, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. If you are not absolutely convinced that this reality describes you, that you love the Lord, that you keep his word, that the Father and the Son have come to you and made their abode in you. If you're not absolutely convinced of that this morning, I urge you to get over the awkwardness, come talk to someone, because you are presented with a choice today. In which way will you walk? And you cannot say, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God, unless you come to Jesus. Your response to this last verse of Micah, I'm flipping back to Micah, you're welcome to as well. Your response to this last verse of Micah is the ultimate application of this passage. When God reveals his word to you, he reveals the hope of his kingdom, he reveals the totality of his kingdom, and he reveals the peace that is there to share for all who would walk in the name of the Lord, but only those who choose to walk in the name of the Lord will go up to the mountain. That being said, fourthly, and in closing, this, this passage beckons us to more than just a choice that we have to make and the problem of sin that can only be overcome by the gospel. This passage beckons you to live in a certain way that is phenomenal. If you go back to what the nations say in verse 2, there's three things for us to consider. First of all, the nations say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. The first thing that this, package, this passage beckons you to do is to come up to the mountain of the Lord. Of course, we only do this through Jesus. Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, and it's only by the blood of Christ that, that cleanses you that you are able to ascend, but through Jesus you are able to go up, and it remains for you to go up. If you are in Christ, Colossians 3 verse 1 says, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Even for those of us who have been in Christ, it still remains for you to choose daily in moments to leave behind the temporal things of the world in devotion and love and draw near to Jesus to spend time at his feet. Sometimes, even those of us who are veteran Christians who think we have it all figured out, right? We don't. But we get busy. We make justifications. We have a, a lot of reasons why we have better things to do than to go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord and to spend time with him. But this is what we are urged to do. There is no one more precious there is no word more fulfilling. There's no relationship or joy that you have that can offer you more lasting satisfaction than the presence of God, your Father. You have to cut through the lies of idolatry and choose to love the Lord to go up, whether that's in moments of devotion, of your day, of your week. We have to go up. You also have to go up recognizing his complete supremacy. I'm going up to the Lord because his mountain is far exalted and far more established than all of the other mountains in my life that I'd rather be spending my time on. I recognize that he is exalted above all. And so I choose to go up. It's not just a willy-nilly thing. I don't choose to go up because this might be fun. I choose to go up because he is Lord of all and my Lord.
you also must choose to go up, even if no one goes with you. This is particularly difficult, especially for those of us who have lost a, a, a spouse or who find yourself battered by the world and there's no one comforting you, there's no one encouraging you, no one would blame you or judge you if you choose to turn to your idols. I mean, come on. It's, it's America today. Everybody's doing it. But you must choose, like Joshua, but as for me, I will serve the Lord. Though none go with me, still I will follow. The comfort in making these kinds of resolutions that... I choose to go up because he is exalted above all and I'm going even if I have to leave you behind. It might be the most painful thing in the world to say that. But I'm going up to the mountain of the house of the Lord even if I leave you behind. If these things describe you, it's significant to note that this voice of verse 2 also becomes your voice. Not only do you commit that you will go up even if none shall follow, but that doesn't stop you from calling people to follow you. The voice is, come, let us go up. You're going to go up regardless, but you're calling for other people to follow with you. The truth is that those who go up and enter into God's presence and spend time at his feet are also those who glow with the face like Moses, right? They spend time with the Lord. They have seen the king of all kings the all in all, the ancient of days, and they plead with others, come up with me. Let me show you the Lord. Let us go together. Secondly, um, there's well, two following reasons. As the people say, let us go up, right? There's two reasons why. These two um, phrases of that. Why are, are we going up? And these things beckon us how we are to live as well. Secondly, we are beckoned to go up so that he may teach us his ways. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. As the hymnist says, what a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on the everlasting arms. Mary, Martha's sister, longed to abide at Jesus' feet, soaking in his words. And so must we. There's good questions here. Is this, is this how you view the word of God? Do you view your time spending with him in this way? Do you long for him to teach you his ways? Do you long to sit at his feet? Are his words more to be desired than gold in the drippings of the honeycomb? The Lord is our teacher. Lastly, we are beckoned to go up so that he may teach us his ways, but that's not the end in itself, is it? Ultimately, as we go up, as we are taught his ways, we also are going so that we may walk in his paths. Learning about Jesus and spending time with Jesus will have an inevitable result. You will look like Jesus and spend time with him. You will live like him. You will seek peace and pursue it. You will speak the truth in love. You will love what is good and hate what is evil. And you will not be afraid because you, just like Jesus, dwell in communion with God the Father on a regular basis. The word of God beckons you this morning. Come further up and further in. Come up to the mountain of the Lord and dwell in his house that he may teach you his ways and that you may walk in his paths. As Isaiah said, come, 
Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the comfort of your word. We thank you for the way that it is so real. It recognizes the depth of our depravity and the predicament of our position, and yet it offers hope in Jesus' name. Lord, we pray that we would find such peace and harmony with each other as we live in your kingdom and recognize you as king. We pray as a church that you would be with us as we seek to be the people of the Lord who go up to your mountain and beckon others to come. We pray that you would be with us as we sit at your feet and humble our hearts enough to cry out, Lord, teach us your ways. And Lord, we pray that you would equip and empower us to walk in your paths, to care for the downcast and the brokenhearted, to reach out to those who do not know you, to be the friend of the sinner, to have complete patience and love because that is who you are. We pray, Lord, that you would challenge each of us to consider our place in your kingdom. We want to walk in your name. Help us to walk in your name, through the name of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.